Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. It's wonderful to be back with you for another season. And starting right now, I'm thrilled to say that we have a lineup of truly extraordinary guests scheduled all the way through the end of this year. So I promise you, you have much to look forward to. The number of people listening to every episode keeps growing, something that absolutely amazes me and for which I am extremely grateful. I wanna say thank you for tuning in and for introducing our show to your friends and colleagues. The Lead from the Heart podcast now ranks in the top 1.5% of all podcasts in the world because of you. It was five years ago that I announced I was starting a podcast and at the time I shared the reasons why. I believed our leadership practices and workplaces around the world were failing and that I had an adaptable, breakthrough, and scientifically proven solution for the world of business to embrace. The problem I faced back then, and even today, sadly, is that many workplace managers heard that word heart mentioned in the context of leadership and instinctively assumed that it must be some kind of soft and weak message. Many people jumped to the conclusion that the person who came up with this idea of leading from the heart had to either have a screw loose or completely didn't understand the real world of business. Even though, as we all know, success in business is about relationships and relationships happen in the heart. So part of my strategy these last five years was to have conversations with brilliant people whose own work offered additional and compelling confirmation for the lead from the heart philosophy. And honestly, it gave me an opportunity to remind you and specifically the naysayers that I was also a senior vice president for a nationwide bank and led successful teams throughout my career. Teams that consistently and enthusiastically overperformed. So I understand business and I understand workplaces. Now, as we start our new season five years later, I will admit the progress of change has been much slower than I'd hoped for or imagined. And as you'll hear, our first guest largely confirms this. That's not to say things aren't evolving. I see it in my own work where many more organizations are reaching out to me for help on keeping people engaged in a post-pandemic world. I'm being invited to speak and consult in the United States and Europe, and an 11th United States University has announced it is including my book in its curriculum. There's even been a steady uptick in the responses to my leadership posts on LinkedIn. I recently saw a report from McKinsey, which suggested a new generation of chief human resource officers is emerging in business that is motivated to make human resources more employee focused, more humane, and more intentionally caring. Dare I conclude that we're at a major tipping point on the precipice of a massive change in leadership practices that will ensure workers thrive along with businesses? It's to that aspirational goal that we begin our new season. And with your continued support and advocacy, we might all see an acceleration of the evolution of leadership that intentionally brings the heart into balance with the mind. And now, on with the show. In a 2007 survey, a group of millennials was asked about their most important life goals. 50% said that being famous was a major goal. 67% said getting rich was their number one goal. These responses may sound a bit disturbing, but the truth is we often measure success in life by title, salary, and recognition of achievement. We've been conditioned to believe that happiness 
is something we have to attain. But in 1938, Harvard University researchers launched what's now become the longest in-depth longitudinal study of human life ever done. The Harvard study of adult development has followed the lives of two generations of individuals from the same families for nearly 85 years. And the conclusion from all these decades of inquiry is that human thriving isn't directly connected to our career accolades at all. Instead, human flourishing and even longevity proves to be predicated on having meaningful connection with others. In other words, the stronger our relationships, the more likely we are to live happy, satisfying, and flourishing lives. Dr. Waldinger is the fourth director in the history of the Harvard study, and he's recently co-written the global bestseller, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. His TED Talk, What Makes a Good Life, has been viewed 42 million times and is one of the 10 most watched TED Talks ever. Dr. Robert Waldinger is also a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, a practicing psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, and a Buddhist Zen master. While we're all conditioned to believe that money buys happiness and that a focus on material needs leads to the good life, Waldinger's work proves that relationships in all forms, whether it's friendships, romantic partnerships, families, co-workers, tennis partners, book club members, that's all what truly characterizes a joyful and healthy life. Inherently, this also means that having fewer friends and daily human interactions can be harmful to well-being. In fact, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control has found that having fewer social relationships is associated with a 29% greater risk of heart disease and a 32% increased risk of stroke. In an era where studies show most people today have only three to five close friends and are often working alone, away from other people, a deprivation of steady connection may actually be harming us. So it's an extraordinary honor for me to welcome Dr. Waldinger to our podcast. While my goal for this conversation is to dig deep into the findings of his research, I'm also very curious about learning his views on remote working and even how his study should affect our thinking about leadership. One thing to know in advance is that we human beings connect with others, not in our minds, but in our hearts. Heading into our conversation, therefore, I believe it may be one of the most important we've ever had. For the rest of the podcast, you've given me permission to call you Bob, but let me first welcome you formally and thank you for joining us, Dr. Robert Waldinger. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, as we were talking before, I'm absolutely thrilled and we're going to be launching our new season with this interview. So I'm, I feel like I won the lottery by having you agree to join me. So thank you for that. To get us started, the Harvard Study of Adult Development began in 1938. And as I remember, you're the fourth steward of the research over these past 85 years. And one of the questions I had when I was reading it with, you know, with all the different things you do in your life, what specifically influenced you to want to oversee this study? Well, my predecessor, George Valiant, who was the third director, was my teacher in medical school. He lectured to my first year medical school class. And he gave us a talk about following all these lives through time. And I sat there absolutely fascinated, thinking this is the coolest thing imaginable. 
but I never dreamed that I would end up directing the study. So when he sought me out many years later and said, how would you like to inherit this study? I was, I was initially a little shocked and then said, yes, sign me up. What was the year? How many year gap? Well, he lectured to my class in 1975, and he sought me out in 2002, so about 27 years, I guess. Wow, that's just fantastic. So, am I understanding you've been doing this since 2002? That's right. I had no idea. I did not realize. I mean, you're knee-deep in this. You've been doing this for two <laughs> decades, right? Yeah. I am neck deep in this. Yeah, I, am, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, we'll go there. What I love about this is this, this the story of a seed being planted and then having the opportunity. I just think that's the way life works for a lot of us. You know, we don't realize it until afterwards that, you know, there was this moment in time that we, we started percolating an idea and then we manifested two decades later. Right. So one of the other fascinating things that I did not know and I have not seen it but you have a TED Talk that on this topic, everything that we're going to be talking about today, that's been seen by 42 million people. So that means it ranks in the top 10 of all downloads for a TED Talk. So before we go into all of the many questions I have, the meat of your book and your work, what's the appeal? What do you think has driven 42 million people to watch your TED Talk? <laughs> well, when I gave the talk, I actually was afraid that people would sit there and say, duh, I know, this I know. is the right. most yeah. obvious thing in the world. Yeah. And so I was really surprised when it caught on the way it did. And what a friend said to me was that what I had done was taken something that we all knew in our guts and just moved it up about 18 inches to our brains and sort of put it there, put it in the forefront of our attention and said, hey, relationships really are important. You've always known it, but now science tells us that it makes a huge difference in how we live our lives. It's interesting because the duh thing comes up a lot for me in a lot of these conversations. Why do we need these kinds of reminders? In other words, he said that it sort of sits in our guts and it doesn't really make it into our intelligence which says we should spend a lot of time cultivating relationships with people. What's the disconnect there? Why do we need the reminder? Well, the, the mind keeps turning us away from a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. We're given a lot of distractions in the culture, right? You know, we're always given these messages that what's really going to make us happy is buying stuff and being famous and all that, the traditional tropes, right? And we get those messages all day long. And relationships aren't something you can measure. They're not really something you can compare easily with other people. And so they're kind of messy and complicated and they sit in the background. The other thing is that we've had relationships from the moment we were born. And so they're the background. They're like the air we breathe. We take them for granted. They're not a shiny bubble that's being shown to us and saying, go after this and you'll be happy. So it's taken a while to move this into our consciousness. And we need to, I think, keep reminding each other because we're so used to taking our connections with other people for granted. I'm not sure when your TED Talk occurred. Was it pre-COVID? 2015. Oh, so it's been a while. I don't know if you are the, the download tracker guy, but has there been any incremental interest 
post-COVID, during COVID? Like, has it all been linear in terms of people listening or has something changed in terms of our interest in wanting to connect more with other people? You know, I haven't tracked it in that way. There's been a steady increase in views over time. It's been seven years now. But what I will say is that when we first wrote the proposal to write this book, The Good Life, which is all about the science behind relationships and how they matter in our lives, when we first wrote the book proposal, it was the beginning of COVID, of the pandemic, of the lockdown, and publishers said, don't even bother submitting this proposal because we don't even know if there's going to be a book publishing industry. And then two months into the lockdown, the publishers came back and said, by all means, we want proposals and especially proposals for this kind of book because people are hungry for this kind of information, for this kind of thinking about how to live life. I'm really glad I asked that because that's exactly what I was looking for was that kind of confirmation. Although it's peculiar that the publisher said, nah, we don't want it initially. We may not be around. I didn't realize anybody was thinking that things were going to get that dire that early on. But let's get to one of the conclusions, the conclusion of the book. You mentioned George Valiant, which I think is a fantastic name, who directed the research for 30 years, the person that was lecturing you in medical school. And I don't know how long ago it was, but several years ago, I remember him saying, I remember reading that he said that the study itself had a straightforward five-word conclusion, which is, in his words, happiness is love, full stop. And then your own recent conclusion is that, quote, good relationships keep us healthier and happier, period. So there seems to be a lot of similarity there, but I'm wondering confirm that. Like, are you saying the same thing? And if so, has the essential need for love and connection consistently been confirmed over the many decades of the study? Well, the bottom line is yes. So whether we call it love or we call it human connection, what we're talking about is the importance of feeling like we have other people in our lives who we care about and who care about us. But this didn't just start with the Harvard study of adult development. I mean, the Buddha talked mm -hmm. about this 2,500 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Sages have talked about this for thousands of years. Every religious tradition. So you alluded to this a minute ago, but many of us naturally assume that money buys happiness. And you assert that focusing on ourselves and our own material needs ends up backfiring. So if that's true... Tell us why having a more generous spirit leads to human thriving. It's complicated because focusing on our material needs is really important until we get basic needs met. When they do studies of happiness and income, they find that your happiness really does go up as you make more and more money to the point that you have food and clothing and shelter and you can take care of your family and get health care, all that, right? But then when they study whether your happiness goes up as you make more and more money after that, then they find you really don't get that much of a boost. So the bottom line is that getting our basic needs met is important for happiness. It's the myth that making a ton of money will make us happy. That's what science shows us is not the truth. Where does the generosity of spirit come in? 
Well, I'll quote the Dalai Lama. <laughs> he said, the wise, selfish person takes care of other people. That what he's pointing to is the idea that what goes around comes around. That when you give a lot away to other people, you get a lot back. And it may not be direct. It may not be from the person you directly gave to, but that all of this comes back, particularly when you give your attention and your positive regard and your energy to other people, you most of the time get it back and get it back with a return on your investment. It's been shown that when we follow these people for you know, 85 years, when we follow people through their adult lives, the people who are most invested in others report being the happiest the most connected to others, and the most engaged with life. You have this wonderful quote in your book, and you're, you're referencing Zen masters here with the Buddha and the Dalai Lama. So I think he said, and I don't remember his name, I just remember that he was a Zen master, that attention is the most basic form of love. Yes, John Tarrant. One of my teachers. Oh, yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And I, I just love that in terms of just giving people your attention and people experience that as love. So you've sort of implied that karma, that we reap what we sow, is a real thing. How would you apply that knowledge to leadership? Like, what advice would you have for leaders in terms of applying this? Well, you reap what you sow. I mean, I think they've done studies, I believe, out of Stanford Business School but I'm not sure, where they show that these different leadership styles make a huge difference in your organization. So for example, there are leaders who lead by fear and they get an immediate jump in performance. People snap to it, right? But then over time, the leaders who lead by fear get passive aggressive behavior from their employees and they get a lot of employee turnover and they get employees who leak important secrets, right? And in fact, we've seen political leaders to whom this happens. Mm -hmm. So what we find is that what goes around comes around, that we find that the people who lead by making clear that they care about their employees, they care about their team members, that those people find that they have teams that are more engaged, that are better with customers, that are better performers, and that are less likely to leave their jobs. Certainly, they find this in the Gallup organization. They find that people who say they have friends at work are the better performers. So leaders who encourage cultivation of relationships at work, cultivation of friendships, leaders who encourage people to know about each other's lives, to have people who matter to them, to show up for every day, those are the leaders who find that they have organizations that thrive. Jim Harger, who's the head of research at Gallup, has been our only three-time guest. So very familiar with his work and the confirmation that what you just said in terms of caring about people leads to the greater outcomes. I'm wondering from your point of view, Bob, if you wonder why this is not sunk in. Going back to the beginning of our conversation here, where we, we take relationships for granted, we seem to have missed the lesson that you just gave in traditional workplaces. Like there's just not a lot of evidence that people are really happy at work. And we've seen 120 million people in America alone quit their jobs in the last two and a half years. So there's sort of 
no report card that says the way we traditionally lead and manage people is effective and maybe doing more harm than good. And yet I don't really see people ask me all the time, are, are you seeing the, the shift? And I don't know that I am. Are you? Well, back to that Gallup poll, 50% of CEOs report feeling lonely. So it's, wow. it's all the way from the top down. And I don't see the shift. In fact, because I work in healthcare, I see the trends going in the wrong direction. So many people leaving healthcare, so many people struggling with systems that don't encourage human connection, that systems that encourage disconnection. And I think that it is difficult to figure out how to reverse those trends. You know, many people feel that they don't matter in their organizations. And we all need to feel like we matter as human beings. One of the people who advocates this, who's done quite well with it, is Arthur Blank. Mm -hmm. You probably know him. He's one of the founders of Home Depot. He, mm -hmm. he owns the Atlanta Falcons and a variety of other businesses. And he has for years advocated valuing his associates. He calls them associates, not employees. And I heard him say in an interview recently that he wants his associates to ask themselves, is this company worth my life? And what he means by that is, if I'm going to ask you as your leader to spend so much of your waking hours of your life in my organization, am I making it worth your life to do that? And I think that is such a powerful orientation Many people are finding that the organizations where they show up every day, either online or in person or both, don't feel like it's worth spending their life this way. How do we reverse that trend? I want to know the answer to that question because that's what we're trying to do, what my entire life's work is about. And it's discouraging to see that when we look at all the turnover in America, and I know that this has occurred outside of America, but the numbers are just so staggering here that they're just illustrative of a lot of discontent. So if I'm an employer and I'm seeing that there's this massive increase, the great resignation, and it's sustained over months and years, you would think that they would say, let's take a good hard look at what we're doing to ensure that we're attracting and retaining the people that we really need for this organization. Instead, what seems to happen is they said, well, we just need to build more recruiting and training into our budgets and just keep going the way we are. And people are easily replaceable and fungible as opposed to, no, we have people that understand the organization. We have people that know our customers. We can't afford to lose them. Let's do whatever we, we need to in order to shift. And that goes back to the individual manager level. And that's where I don't see this translating. And I was hoping you would say, no, from my point of view, I actually do see this happening. <laughs> no, I'm afraid I don't. Now, I don't have my finger on the pulse of of the business world, to be sure. I mean, I see a corner of the healthcare industry. But what we do know is that people are not feeling cared for by their organization. And the question is, is it possible to reverse that? There are ways that people have done it. One of the things that I've seen argued by, for example, Vivek Murthy, our Surgeon General, mm -hmm. is that when leaders allow themselves to show vulnerability, when they allow themselves 
to show that they don't know all the answers. When they allow themselves to ask for help and receive help, that that's a powerful model for others. That when the priority is to retain good employees, right, to make it worth their while to stay in the organization, that that shifts how organizations operate, right? It shifts policies. One of the things that I think we're struggling with is the impersonal nature of a lot of the way policies are designed and executed in our organizations. And it's very difficult to know what to do with that. But I think what you just said about people saying, well, you know, we just need more corporate training and people are replaceable. We know that's not true. I mean, I've heard that in some healthcare organizations, if you have to replace a surgeon, it costs $1 million dollars. Mm in terms of lost revenue, in terms of onboarding and all that. And it's not just a highly paid technical worker. Replacing any worker is a quantifiable loss that ought to be front and center when people think about whether it's necessary to design our organizations to take care of and retain people. Amen. I'm glad we went down that road. I want to get back to the study specifically and One of the, I guess, the underlying takeaway is that people who live the longest and who stay the healthiest as they grow older maintain warm relationships with family and friends. And so I'm wondering how concerned you are with the data that shows that loneliness is so much more pervasive than ever before. Well, it's a huge concern. About one in three people in the United States report feeling lonely much of the time. And those rates are pretty similar around the world, particularly in the developed world. And we know that loneliness is a tremendous hazard to emotional well-being, but also to physical health. So there's a lot of work being done and attention being devoted to trying to decrease loneliness and social isolation. But the causes of loneliness are so many and so varied that there's no single solution to the problem. And that's where everybody is struggling. You referenced the book Bowling Alone. So our tendency is to have fewer friends, to have you know less interaction with people. And then we've got social media, where particularly Gen Z growing up, not actually having conversations with friends, but texting back and forth and sharing photos and experiences on Instagram, etc., Do you think that plays any role in this? Almost certainly it does. Social media is designed to capture and hold our attention. And it's designed for us to passively consume content. And what we know is that when people passively consume content, when we look at other people's curated lives on social media, it lowers our self-esteem. It increases our rates of depression and anxiety. Because we imagine that other people are having perfect lives and we're the only ones who have very imperfect lives. It's not the truth, but it can lead us to believe that other people have it all figured out. One of my teachers once said, we're always comparing our insides to other people's outsides. (laughs) And boy, that happens more than anywhere. It happens on social media where we're comparing our outsides, our curated lives, to what each of us feels like alone watching our screens. How does that play into loneliness? Well, it makes us feel more isolated. 
if you feel like everybody else is doing fine and you're not. I'm not measuring up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not measuring up. I don't have it figured out. I'm the only one who's vulnerable. There's so many ways that we feel like outliers. There's a great quote from a 19th century clergyman that I love. I don't even remember who he was, but he told his flock, he said, be kind for every person you meet is fighting a great battle. And it seems to me that that's the counterpoint. That's the truth, right? And it's the counterpoint to these Instagram feeds that show us all on beautiful beaches and at wonderful parties and always about to dig into beautiful plates of food. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that that quote's been attributed to a lot of different people, including Plato. And so I think it's ancient wisdom that we forget. And social media makes us forget it rather quickly. So thank you. You also say that there's a clear link between health and social connection that basically dates all the way back to the, the beginning of the human species. So if human beings have always needed one another in order to flourish, what would you say to people who are content with never returning to an office and who believe they can get all the connection they need from friends and family they see, you know, after work hours and on the weekends? In other words, work friends and people have said this to me. So work friends and work relationships are not all that important. Well, first of all, when you study thousands of lives, you realize one size never fits all. So there's no prescription for everybody that's going to work. Some of us need more connection than others. But that said, all of us need some kind of connection. Now, it may be that for some people, family and friends are enough and that a workplace, you know, that's virtual may work. For many of us, it doesn't work. That in-person connection is nourishing emotionally. In addition, workplace connection, as we know, has a lot to do with improving functioning of teams and enhancing careers. So all that is the case for many people. But again, because people have such different needs for social connection, flexible models probably make a lot of sense for industries where that's possible. I'm certainly not the person who has the answer to this. Well, I wonder, though, is it possible that people who say, I don't really need work friends, I've got plenty of connection on my own, are deluding themselves in some way? In other words, are they going to find out later on that they actually were deficient? Like they didn't get the fulfillment that they needed from other relationships because they really didn't have as many as they thought they did, or they had less interaction with people. Is it going to catch up to some people or are some people just wired where they don't need as much connection as others? Well, certainly some people are wired, so they don't need as much connection. In fact, we're all on a spectrum from introverts to extroverts, right? And introverts don't need as many people, and they find a lot of people stressful. Extroverts need a lot of people. They get their energy from other people. So there's huge variation in that. But the other thing is that loneliness is a subjective experience. So if you tell me that you don't feel lonely, who am I to say you do? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe, maybe you never see anybody and you're perfectly fine with that. I cannot tell you that you're wrong, right? So loneliness is in the eye of the beholder. It's not like someone's going to wake up one day and say, I was always lonely and didn't know it. 
But it might be that one day you'll turn around and say, gee, I don't have enough social connection now. That often happens to people, for example, when they retire. They have seen people every day in the workplace and they take those people for granted. And then they go home having retired and they turn around and say, wait, where did everybody go? Mm -hmm. Because they took for granted the connections that they had. But that's different from suddenly realizing that you were always lonely and never knew it. That's very clear. Thank you. You also say that the, call it a massive global experiment in isolation that we all just experienced, meaning COVID, proved that technology, this is your words, that proved technology is not a substitute for being together with other human beings. So along these same lines, knowing that many people will doubt this, why do you believe it's so? Well, we know that the digital world filters out certain aspects of human interaction, that there are certain qualities of emotion, of behavior that just can't come across on a digital platform. Now, we're not sure exactly what those are. So there's a lot of ability for us to connect with each other emotionally online. And many of us have experienced having wonderful calls, you know, video chats with other people where there's a lot of good feeling exchanged. But we know that some things get filtered out. And there's research going on right now to try to understand, well, what exactly does get filtered out? I think we've all had the experience, particularly when the lockdown was over, of coming together again with people we'd been separated from and having this upsurge of positive feeling like, wow, it's so great to be together again. Because some things were missing but we're still finding out what those things are. You also acknowledge very carefully in your book that remote working has many positive effects. You say that it gives workers greater flexibility, it eliminates commutes, of course, and it lets people spend more time with their families. But to be clear, Bob, you are no fan of working from home. So tell us why. No, actually, I am a fan of working from home. <laughs> that does not come through in your book. Is that true? Well, so for example, I used to commute to downtown Boston every day, 45 minutes each way. During lockdown, I stopped the commute. And now my department, my psychiatry department at Massachusetts General Hospital is mostly remote. Unless we have to be in the hospital, we're instructed to stay at home and do our work from home. That has removed an hour and a half of commuting from my day. It is a wonderful blessing. Now, I miss my colleagues. I miss the in-person, but there is a trade-off. So what I can say is not that working from home is bad and going in is good or vice versa. It's that it's a mixed bag. And I think what we're seeing is that it's a mixed bag for everybody. So it depends on who you are. It depends on what your job is. There's so many factors that determine whether more remote work is better or more in-person work is better. I don't think one size fits all. Okay. Well, I'm, do my I'm sorry. That's no, probably not the answer you wanted from me, but that's what you get. All right. Sorry. So that's okay. But you know, if you're running a large company, let's say you have 10,000 employees and you're trying to make a decision. And it would be easy to just say every team makes their own decisions. But then you get in and you, you want to have a meeting with people and you realize that that team made the decision to never be in the office. And so there's all this complication. So a CEO, which, by the way, seems to be where things are going right now, the CEOs are largely saying 
there needs to be some order here. There needs to be some clarity. And they're leaning into, there's got to be a certain number of days where everybody's here. And then if we're kind and generous, we'll let people work from home. So that seems to be the trend right now. And we'll see whether or not that continues. But if you were a CEO or advising CEOs, understanding everybody's different and has different needs, but from a company standpoint, the best way to operate it, is there a balance between the number of days people should be working at home and working in the office? My sense is that flexibility is what would work the best. That to say, okay, I've got 10,000 employees and everybody has to be in the office three days a week completely overrides what may be most useful, even most efficient for some employees. For some employees, maybe they really need to be in five days a week. For other employees, maybe they don't ever need to be in the office, but maybe they need to come together once a month for an offsite retreat in person, depending on their work depending on who they are, and depending on the kind of career they want at the company. Now, that's a lot of flexibility. That's a lot of tailoring. Is it worth it? I think that remains to be demonstrated. But my hunch is that people are varied enough in their needs and in their desires that allowing for flexible models is going to get better performance out of more people. That's just my guess. Well, I mean, I think people listening to this are probably saying, hell yeah, this is finally somebody who gets this. And the people that are working remotely most of the time or more than where companies like Google and Meta and Apple are saying three days in the office and two days at home. And you've got Salesforce saying it's going to be four days in the office. You've got Chase very soon going to say everybody back in the boat and you're never working from home. So companies are leaning in an opposite direction and they don't want to do what you said, which is to tailor it. It's important that we dig into this because you have a fascinating point of view on this, particularly because we're really talking about connection. And I think I may have just leaped into the assumption that because you believe connection and relationships are so important that working together in an office was in people's best interest. But you're not really saying that. You're saying that a blend and really tailoring it to the individual needs of teams is probably the best way to go. So flesh this out for us. Well, one of the things we know about all of us is that we want to feel seen by other people. We need to feel seen. So if I say to you, you need to be in every day, well, maybe that is not taking into account something going on in your life. And maybe you are at your best when you never come in, right? Now, I don't know, but maybe you're so valuable to my organization that I need the flexibility to do that. But if you don't feel seen by me as your leader, you're going to look somewhere else, right? So I realize that this can get misinterpreted as, well, we're all snowflakes, we're all unique, and we all have to be catered to. I'm not advocating that, but I'm saying that there ought to be ways, we are intelligent enough that there ought to be ways of developing a variety of models and then seeing what works for whom in which kinds of positions, and particularly in bigger organizations, and that it might be worth investing the energy in figuring out a variety of models from which to choose. 
So you said earlier that you're less familiar with business, but very familiar with healthcare. So along the lines of what you just recommended, do you see experimentation going on? Are our leaders saying, let's take this team and give them this opportunity and see what happens? Is that happening? So in other words, are we continuing to learn from this experiment or are we saying the jury's in and we've already made our minds up? No, of course we're continuing to learn. I mean, most of us in mental health care, which I'm a part of, if you had told me that you could do meaningful mental health care on Zoom, if you told me that four years ago, I would have said you're out of your mind. And we're finding, no, actually you can. So in fact, most of my colleagues are doing most of their mental health care, outpatient mental health care, remotely. And what they're finding, the hospitals are finding that in fact, it's a better revenue generator. Because if insurance companies will cover remote health care, then hospitals can bill for Zoom sessions, right? What that means is that many of the no-shows, which you can't bill insurance companies for, don't happen. The barriers to meeting with your provider are much lower when you can do it remotely from your home. So what that means is that actually the bottom line has benefited from this remote work. That's a surprise. So we're always finding out new things. We're always doing experiments. That said, we have to figure out what kinds of mental health care don't work very well remotely. So we're always experimenting. We're always learning, certainly in the healthcare field. And I expect there's a lot to be learned in almost every area of the business world and the working world. Well, I agree with you. I was wondering if you think it's intentional meaning that rather than learn passively day to day by observing what's happening, that you're actually creating experiments where you're trying different things to see what works best. Yeah, I think some people are. But as we know, necessity is the mother of mm -hmm. invention. Mm -hmm. I mean, none of us were going to invent widespread remote mental health care, but the pandemic forced us to. So I think, yes, some organizations have the bandwidth and the foresight to create experiments and try this model compared with that model. Other organizations aren't doing that, but they're learning as they go. Okay. So the patients that you're treating via Zoom, let's assume I'm one, and I reach out to you and say that I would like to begin going through therapy with you. You already know that connecting with people via Zoom is still a very effective way of treating mental health issues. Do you feel a need to meet me in person before you'll have a meeting with me over Zoom? Or does that not matter? If at all possible, definitely, we meet in person. And I encourage people to come in person whenever they can. But that said, for some people, coming in person isn't possible or isn't desirable. And what we're finding is we're able to do a lot of good work remotely. So we do what we can, but I prioritize in-person work and ask people to prioritize it when it's possible. How come? Because there's a lot of emotional exchange and there's a lot of observation of behavior that I can do in person that is harder to do remotely. I can't see someone's body language as well on Zoom as I can in person. And body language is a very important signal. It's a very important source of data 
when it comes to finding out what's going on in somebody's mind and heart. So I'm a administrator for a hospital and I start to realize, hey, we can start billing people because they're not missing meetings. So we're going to get greater revenue. So I come to all the psychiatrists and mental health physicians and say, I think it's time for you guys to just do most of your meetings on Zoom. It sounds like a really great business decision, but is that the best thing for people's health and for your ability to treat them? Well, that's where I would get back to your question about experiments. I would do an experiment. I would look at a group doing it all on Zoom, and I'd look at a group doing it in person and see what works for whom. It's very possible that it's not either or. It's that for some problems that people bring to us, remote work is fine. For other problems, it's not good. We need to learn more about that. So I feel that in listening to you, that you still very much lean into interpersonal relationships, particularly treating them from a mental health issue, even perhaps even in a work setting, is still better in person. But that working remotely or treating somebody remotely still has lots of benefits. So just because I'm unclear, I thought I have to ask Bob, just give one final moment of clarity here before we move on. Yeah, it's unclear. (laughs) You're unclear because it is unclear. You're trying to get me to come down on some final pronouncement. No, no, I'm not. I'm actually not. I'm totally impressed by that you can't do that. I can't. But I do still hear in you that, like, for example, your preference is to still be in person with people. And you think that there's an exchange that doesn't happen via Zoom. So what I'm hoping to do is to have your insights help inform other managers to make intelligent decisions. And I want to make sure that you share as much insight with them so that they can go, okay, I think I know what I want to do now. So that's, that's really where I'm going. I'm not looking for a, a binary answer here. Well, what I would say is keep an open mind to different possibilities and see what works. Try different things and see how it works without assuming you know what's better and what's worse. Perfect. Thank you. There was another thing that I thought was really fascinating, and I heard somebody refer to it as micro-connections. It's not the language that you use, but one of the takeaways from your book is that brief interactions with people that we have interactions with very quickly, like a coffee shop barista or a dry cleaner or a, a store employee, something like that, they all have positive impacts on our health and well-being. So how do we maximize these? Like, how do we get the most benefit out of them? Well, it involves overcoming a little bit of resistance. Many of us are shy about striking up conversations with strangers. But when we do, we find that much more often than not, we're happier, we're more energized, we enjoy it. So try some things. I've tried, whenever I get into an Uber, talking with the driver. And particularly if the driver has an accent, mm-hmm. I simply ask, where are you from? <laughs> Me too. And I end up learning so much mm-hmm. about different countries, about why people come to the U.S., about what it's like for them. And then I get out of the car, usually better informed, a little lighter, a little more energized, because I've had an interesting conversation with somebody. So that's just one small thing. Somebody else talked about going through security in airports looking at the TSA workers' name tag, looking them in the eye and saying, you know, hi, Sarah, 
what's it like today? Is it really busy? You know, and just seeing what happens. People usually are so shocked that you look them in the eye, that you call them by name, and that you're interested. So there are all kinds of things people can try and just see how it makes you feel when you do these things. Tell the train story. Okay. There was an experiment in Chicago with commuters on the train, and they divided people into two groups. One group they assigned to strike up a conversation with a stranger on the train, and one group they said, just do what you normally do, you know, read, look at your phone, listen to music. And they asked people before they did this, how do you think you're going to like this? And the people who were assigned to strike up a conversation thought they weren't going to like it very much at all. But when they asked them after they'd completed their assignment, the people who struck up the conversations were significantly happier than the people who just did their usual thing on their commute. Another lesson from the study is what you call social fitness. So please tell us what this is and I suppose why it's so important to our own physical health, longevity, even mental health. Well, social fitness is just a term we coined because we thought it was a good analogy with physical fitness. The idea being that relationships require the kind of sustained practice that taking care of our physical health does. So if I work out today, I don't come home and say, good, I'm done. I never have to do that again. Uh, Similarly, what we found when we studied all these people was that the people who took small actions every day, every week to connect with other people were the happiest and the healthiest. And so maintaining your social fitness can be something you think of as an ongoing practice like your physical fitness. Thank you. Bob, this is a perfect time to take a brief departure from our great discussion for a segment that we cleverly call the heartbeat round. I long ago learned that our listeners are really interested in learning about our guests more personally. And so I have a series of questions I want to ask you, but this time we want you to answer them in a brief and instinctive answer. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game? Okay. All right, here we go. A Buddhist teaching that has great relevance to leadership. Hmm. The wise, selfish person takes care of other people. The trait you most admire in other people. Kindness. Best book you've read in the past year? Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. One piece of advice you'd give your younger self? Keep doing the things you care about and turn away from the things that feel depleting. A cultural value every organization should have? Compassion. Quote that best captures your life philosophy? It's a quote from Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Power Mm -hmm. of Myth. He wrote, If the path before you is clear, you're probably on somebody else's. (laughs) That's brilliant. The skill improvement you're working on right now. I I have a conversational Spanish teacher who I meet with remotely in Spain every week. I know. An author or philosopher who most influenced your leadership thinking. Hmm. I think probably it's the Dalai Lama. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. Mm. Fall on your face publicly. Oh, thanks. (laughs) I'm just kidding. The most important lesson you took from the two-year COVID experience? Nothing turns out exactly the way we expect it to. Your synonym for the word heart. I'm, I'm thinking I was a doctor, you know, I'm looking at the organ. The core of what makes me alive. A subject you believe all managers would be wise to bone up on. 
emotional intelligence. Perfect. These are wonderful. Let me just say that your answer to the heart question was probably the most profound anyone has ever given on this podcast. So thank you for going through this with me. Okay. So Bob, since this is a leadership-focused podcast and one that specifically advocates that more heart and care be brought into workplace management, what's one final takeaway from all of your research and experience that you believe would be most essential knowledge for our listeners to mull over as our conversation ends? The biggest takeaway is that relationships at work are not a distraction, by and large. They are an enhancement. And that if you set up a workplace where people feel connected to each other, where they know something about each other's lives, where they want to show up for each other, you'll have a workforce that's happier, more engaged, and more productive. That's fantastic and a great place to leave this. On behalf of my audience, Bob, thank you so very, very much. You're a delight and super intelligent and was just a huge, huge, huge honor for me to have you join us. Well, happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye, Bob. Our brilliant theme music is the jazz classic Take the A-Train, written by Billy Strayhorn in 1941. It was originally performed by Duke Ellington and his band, but our version is performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. As we close, I'd like to ask you to keep me in mind as a speaker for your next event or as a consultant to your organization. I'm represented by three speakers bureaus, the Sweeney Agency in Toronto, Speak Inc. in San Diego, and Preferred Speakers in Minneapolis. As always, I want to thank the team that brings you our podcast, Mr. Ken Boynton, Randy Yont, Anna Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, and my exceptional producer, Eric Goz. And as always, I leave you with my two consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now.